Welcome to the January 7, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will review a study that shows that non-invasive imaging of T-cell metabolic activity can detect early graft-versus-host disease after allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Learn more about how detailed assessment of measurable residual disease in multiple myeloma can better define outcomes and how treatment resistance arises. And finally, examine the mechanism of action and pharmacokinetics of siraparantag a small molecule being developed to rapidly reverse the effects of anticoagulants. Our first topic is a study entitled Glycolytic Metabolism of Pathogenic T-Cells Enables Early Detection of GVHD by 13C MRI, conducted by Julian Osman at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and colleagues led by Natalia Buxbaum. Allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation is often used as curative therapy for patients with aggressive hematologic malignancies or non-malignant hematologic diseases. However, acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD, following allogeneic transplant are still major barriers to successful outcomes, and acute GVHD is the most significant risk factor for the development of chronic GVHD. GVHD of the liver and gastrointestinal tract pose particular diagnostic challenges, since definitive diagnosis is invasive and biopsies have a high risk of serious bleeding and infection. Thus, non-invasive approaches to diagnose and monitor GVHD are needed. T-cells are primary mediators of GVHD, and their activation is an early event in GVHD pathogenesis. This team had previously showed that alloreactive CD4-positive T-cells traffic to target organs in advance of overt graft-versus-host disease. Studies by other groups have shown that antigen-driven activation of CD4-positive T-cells results in increased rates of glycolysis and increased glycolytic flux is essential for their effector function. In the current study, This group hypothesized that metabolic imaging of glycolysis would therefore allow early non-invasive detection of GVHD in target organs in vivo. They used a murine model of GVHD and metabolic MRI to monitor signs of GVHD in the liver. One 13C labeled pyruvic acid was used as a glycolytic tracer. Hyperpolarized 13C pyruvate MRI detected high rates of pyruvate conversion to lactate in the liver even before the animals developed GVHD symptoms. Of note, glycolysis in the liver was not increased during subsequent overt GVHD. They also used transcriptomic, protein, metabolite, and ex vivo metabolic activity analysis to document high glycolytic activity in CD4-positive T effector cells, which are the predominant pathogenic CD4 T cell subset. Finally, Preliminary data from single-cell sequencing of circulating T-cells in patients undergoing allogeneic HSCT also suggested that increased glycolysis may be a feature of incipient acute GVHD in patients. Metabolic imaging is being increasingly used in the clinical setting and thus has the potential for non-invasive early detection of GVHD. The study authors also point out that targeting upregulated glycolysis may be a promising therapeutic strategy. 
for modulating overactive immunity mediated by T-cells that characterizes GVHD and other conditions. Commentary provided by Matthias Delges and Michael Schaefers from the University Hospital Münster in Germany affirms that these results provide compelling evidence that molecular imaging of T-cell metabolic activity is a promising approach to detect early-onset GVHD. This approach could also be useful to assess immune responses in other cell therapies. Lastly, non-invasive measurement of T-cell metabolic activity might be more informative and reliable compared to clinical assessment when evaluating the effectiveness of novel compounds to treat GVHD. Stelgis and Schaefers also point out that in vivo imaging using positron emission tomography, or PET, with FDG, has previously been used to detect increased glycolysis in intestinal GVHD, an imaging modality that is clinically available in all cancer centers. Future novel approaches, such as combining FDG PET with MRI, could provide additional and independent MRI-based evidence of intestinal GVHD. Our next topic is a study conducted by Goika Chia, Paiva, and colleagues from the PET-HEMA-GEM Cooperative Group in Spain, entitled Deep MRD Profiling Defines Outcome and Unveils Different Modes of Treatment Resistance in Standard and High-Risk Myeloma. Multiple myeloma is the second most common hematologic cancer and is characterized by great clinical heterogeneity, with some patients having dismal survival while others are potentially cured. The variable disease course has encouraged the quest for improvements in personalized treatment. Cytogenetic abnormalities have indisputable prognostic value in multiple myeloma. The International Myeloma Working Group selected T414, T1416, and DEL17P13 as high-risk abnormalities because these identify patients with inferior survival in multiple clinical trials. An unexplained clinical paradox is that patients with high-risk cytogenetics have a similar level of conventional complete response to initial therapy as standard-risk patients, but shorter progression-free survival and overall survival. This is why response durations are more important than the depth of response, as explained by Gilles Corre from University Hospital in Toulouse, France, who provided commentary on the manuscript. These observations represent a biological conundrum regarding the nature of tumor reservoirs of residual disease that persist after initial therapy in myeloma patients with standard and high-risk cytogenetics. There is now growing evidence to support risk stratification according to measurable residual disease, or MRD, rather than using conventional response criteria. However, there was limited information about the impact of MRD in patients with high-risk multiple myeloma treated with optimal therapies and monitored with next-generation techniques. And there was even less data on the biological landscape of MRD cells to understand if shorter duration of remission in patients with high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities is a consequence of greater MRD levels persisting after treatment, the result of different modes of MRD resistance, or both. To address these gaps, this group showed that highly sensitive assessment of MRD helps resolve the clinical heterogeneity of risk stratification according to cytogenetic abnormalities. They found that persistence of MRD was associated with shortened survival of standard risk patients 
whereas undetectable MRD overcame the dismal prognosis of otherwise high-risk multiple myeloma. Samples were analyzed from an open-label Phase three study that included 458 patients receiving six induction cycles of bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, referred to as VRD chemotherapy, autologous stem cell transplant condition with either busulfan and melphalan or busulfan and low-dose irradiation, followed by two consolidation cycles of VRD. Patients were then enrolled in a subsequent clinical trial that randomized maintenance with lenalidomide and dexamethasone with or without exasimib for two years. Then, patients continued with maintenance for three additional years if MRD positive or stopped therapy if they were MRD negative. The median follow-up was 40 months. The 36-month progression-free and overall survival rates were higher than 90% in patients with undetectable MRD with no significant differences between cases having standard versus high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities. Persistent MRD resulted in median progression-free survival of approximately three and two years in patients with standard and high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities, respectively. In this study, next-generation flow cytometry was used to isolate residual tumor cells and compare them to diagnostic cells from the same patients using whole exome sequencing. There was greater clonal selection in standard-risk multiple myeloma, but higher genomic instability with acquisition of new mutations in high-risk patients. RNA sequencing of diagnostic and MRD tumor cells also showed a distinct MRD phenotype for high-risk patients, including a specific enrichment for deregulated genes in the reactive oxygen species, or ROS, pathway. In summary, these colleagues identified two key findings in their research. Undetectable MRD after induction chemotherapy, transplant, and consolidation chemotherapy overcame the poor prognosis of patients with high-risk multiple myeloma. Characterization of MRD cells revealed greater clonal selection in standard-risk multiple myeloma and ROS-mediated drug resistance in high-risk patients. In the accompanying commentary, Corey notes that the study team provides an elegant demonstration that achieving an undetectable MRD overcomes poor prognosis in high-risk multiple myeloma patients. Additionally, she points out that the study authors make the argument that MRD should be a clinical endpoint in multiple myeloma. If MRD remains or reverts positive, even in standard-risk patients, early therapeutic intervention may be essential. This study will also help pave the way to understanding how to target the residual tumor cells, which is a key next step in the road to cure multiple myeloma. Our final topic today is a study entitled Siraparantag, an anticoagulant reversal drug, mechanism of action, pharmacokinetics, and reversal of anticoagulants by Jack Ansell from the Hofstra Northwell School of Medicine in New York and other colleagues in the U.S. Since the discovery of dicumarol in 1940, the vitamin K antagonists, primarily warfarin, were the only oral anticoagulants available. In 2010, the first of a new class of anticoagulants was introduced, dabigatrin, an oral direct thrombin, or factor 2A inhibitor followed shortly by four oral factor 10A inhibitors, including edoxaban and rivaroxaban. These new direct oral anticoagulants, referred to as DOACs, are as effective as warfarin, and evidence strongly suggests they are safer, 
However, even though major bleeding rates are lower, there is still a 4% risk of major bleeding and an even higher rate of clinically relevant non-major bleeding. DOACs were developed without specific reversal agents that could be used to treat active bleeding or to reverse anticoagulation in the face of urgent surgery. This has been a limitation for most currently used antithrombotic agents. The limitation was partially remedied with the availability of a humanized murine monoclonal antibody, FAB fragment, that binds to and reverses dabigatrin, and a second agent, andexanet alpha, that can bind to and reverse both oral factor 10A inhibitors and enoxaparin, a low molecular weight heparin. Siraparantag is a third anticoagulant reversal agent currently being developed and is emerging from phase two clinical trials with healthy volunteers. Of note, reversal of anticoagulant activity in these studies have been measured using a manual whole blood clotting time, since siraparantag binds to the anionic additives in blood collection tubes. Here, Ansel and colleagues report on the mechanism of action of siraparantag, its pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic characteristics, and its early proof-of-concept ability to reverse anticoagulant-induced bleeding in animal models. Siraparantag is a synthetic, water-soluble cationic molecule that arose from a program of intentional molecular design that searched for molecules that would bind to free, unfractionated heparin through a non-covalent charge-charge interaction. The molecule that bound most strongly to heparins was siraparantag. Unexpectedly, energy minimization modeling predicted that siraparantag would also bind to DOACs. To validate this prediction, the current study used dynamic light scattering methodology to show that binding occurred between siraparantag and heparins, as well as to all DOACs tested. Importantly, siraparantag did not bind to a variety of proteins, including coagulation factors and commonly used drugs. Pharmacokinetics and metabolism were also studied. Siraparantag reaches maximum concentration within minutes following intravenous administration with a half-life of 12 to 19 minutes. It is primarily hydrolyzed by serum peptidases into two metabolites, neither of which has substantial activity. Siraparantag and its metabolites are recovered almost entirely in the urine. In rodent models of bleeding, including rat tail transection and liver laceration, a single IV dose given at peak concentrations of the anticoagulant, but before bleeding injury, significantly reduced the amount of blood loss. Additionally, siraparantag appeared to have substantial ability to reduce blood loss in animal models when given after the bleeding injury. In summary, siraparantag is an anticoagulant reversal agent that binds non-covalently to heparin, low molecular weight heparin, and direct oral anticoagulants. This agent has several unique attributes, including its broad-spectrum activity, ability to be rapidly and easily administered, and its long-functional pharmacodynamic half-life. Phase two trials in healthy volunteers are currently ongoing to assess the ability of siraparantag to reverse anticoagulation with other DOACs before phase three clinical trials are initiated in patients with major bleeding or needing urgent surgery. In commentary entitled Siraparantag, the next anticoagulant airbag, Deborah Siegel from University of Ottawa in Ontario, Canada, concludes that the results of this study support the potential of siraparantag as an anticoagulant reversal agent. She also notes that studies on the clinical benefit of other anticoagulant reversal agents have shown mixed results thus far, 
mortality rates have been higher than expected based on the rates of clinical hemostasis. This suggests that existing definitions of hemostatic efficacy may not adequately capture ongoing bleeding or adverse events triggered despite cessation of bleeding. Additional clinical trials to evaluate benefit versus risks of siraparantag and other anticoagulant reversal agents are eagerly awaited. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.